Gracious Lord, you are gracious, abounding in mercy, full of loving kindness. Lord, as we look into your word this morning, we pray that you would again reveal yourself in those ways, as those things, to us today. Lord, open my lips that my mouth would proclaim your praise. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be go, go ahead and be seated. I want to begin with a few questions this morning. Who's buried in Grant's tomb? When was the War of 1812? Who fought the Spanish-American War? Where is the Panama Canal? And most importantly, what does the Coast Guard do? These are the kinds of questions my children and I like to bat around at the dinner table from time to time. And the answers are seemingly obvious, right? Although Groucho Marx, the originator of that first question, pointed out that the answers aren't always as obvious as we might think. The answer, in fact, is no one is buried in Grant's tomb. It's a tomb. U.S. Grant and his wife, Julia, are entombed there. But above the ground, no one is buried in Grant's tomb. Likewise, it may seem somewhat obvious, the answer to the question of who and what is the book of Ruth about, right? Well, Ruth, right? Well, sure. But the answer to that question is also a little more complicated than we might at first think. Over the course of this month, we are going to walk through this book of Ruth, chapter by chapter. And what we'll find is that it is much more than simply the story of a brave young woman. It is more than another bit of biblical history uh, recounting some episodes in the story of God's people. This biblical book is actually best described as a short story. It has far more poetic and literary character than mere uh, historical account. And while by the end we come to understand that there is significant theological history that is being conveyed in this story, the way it's preserved is far more artistically rendered than a lot of the other historical content of the Old Testament. Even reading that uh, genealogy at the very end is much more merciful than you know, reading through the book of Numbers. This is a short story such as someone like C.S. Lewis or Flannery O'Connor might write. It conveys deep theological truth, but through the rather commonplace story of an ordinary family living in an ordinary place during really less than extraordinary times. As a result, though the author is certainly conveying historical events, especially with that genealogical information at the end, the author makes very clear that they are not inventing a fiction. But while it's historically true, it's conveyed with all the prose and poetic beauty of the most skillfully written novella. Thus, it invites the reader to enter into the story and identify with these characters who really are very much an everyman, or or actually more accurately, every woman kind of characters. 
And that makes them incredibly relatable and the lessons learned by them incredibly applicable. So, please take out your Bible, and I'm going to be inviting you to do that each and every week, so if you don't have it, uh, you might want to start bringing it. Uh, We do have some at the back if you need to grab one. But take out your Bible and open with me to Ruth chapter 1. You will find this little four-chapter book nestled in between uh, the book of Judges and 1 Samuel. Ruth chapter 1. And right away, appreciate what the author is telling us right there in verse 1. Ruth 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. This opening verse gives us a ton of context understanding. First, though we have absolutely no idea who the author is, we have some guesses as to when he or she, because there is a plausible uh, argument that the author may in fact have been female, but we do know at least when he or she was writing. Obviously, he or she is writing at least a few generations after the events that they are recording. The author is clearly not living during the period of the judges. In fact, we know from the end of the letter, not letter, rather, the book, that he or she had to be writing during or after the reign of King David, because they go to lengths to talk about David in the end. But appreciate for the sake of the drama of the story that's about to unfold This was a very dangerous and tenuous time. During the time of the Judges, the book that records that history, simply called Judges, another obvious answer, tells us again and again that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's the refrain of that book. There was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's when times were good during the period of the judges. The author of our story has just told us straight off, times are not good. This is a time of famine. Furthermore, for Elimelech and his family to go over and to seek refuge in Moab means they were desperate. During the time of the judges, Moab was a continual thorn in the side of God's people. They were the enemy. So to go there and seek refuge would have been incredibly risky and incredibly dangerous for these four individuals. It would be like saying today, you know, there was still conflict in Iraq, so Qasim and his family went to Syria to take refuge. Have you read the news recently? That is not trading up. But this contextual information also communicates something else important that will come to bear as the story unfolds. Throughout the Old Testament, particularly during the formative generations of the patriarchs in Genesis, God's plans and his purposes for the patriarchs and for his people were often shifted and moved forward by great cataclysmic events like famine. It was famine that drove some of Abraham's movements. It drove some of Isaac's movements. It sent the sons of Jacob down into Egypt after Joseph. 
So by highlighting the famine that drove Elimelech and his family into Moab, already the story is sort of priming the pump for the faithful reader to expect some kind of divine intervention. But needless to say, that is not the perspective shared by the people experiencing the events. It is not how it probably felt living this story. Again, this is artful storytelling, so while the author hints at, this, uh, at these sort of divine fingerprints that will be revealed, they don't come out and, and blatantly declare it to us right up front. The author allows us, the readers, to feel the pain, the forlornness, the anxiety, the isolation that these characters must have felt. Because we learn that Elimelech's family sojourned in this dangerous foreign land for at least ten, excuse me, at least ten years. We learn that Elimelech had to be satisfied with allowing his sons to marry non-Jewish wives, a thing that was a definite no-no according to the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And finally, we learn that Naomi is the only member of her family that goes down into Moab to survive and come back out. Verse 3 tells us, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Appreciate the devastation that Naomi felt. She is completely bereft. It's little wonder that when her Moabite daughters-in-law seek to accompany her back to Israel when she decides to return, she says to them in verse 13, Know, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Nor is it surprising when she returns to her hometown of Bethlehem. The whole town was stirred Because of them, it says. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Which means, by the way, bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. While the storyteller has set us up to expect God to show up in some great way, they also want us to feel this plot tension. Naomi has essentially challenged the kindness and the goodness of God. She blames God for, quote, bringing calamity upon her. She says she's come back completely empty. She feels the Almighty has dealt bitterly with her. The loving kindness of God moves into the spotlight as the primary question our story wants to follow. And if you're following along on the sermon outline, take note. This is the question. Is God truly good? Is he truly kind to those who love and follow him? Or does he deal bitterly even with his chosen and faithful people? That's the question that stands at the very center of the action here in the book of Ruth. Can God be trusted? Is he truly kind? 
a few weeks ago when we were studying one of the Psalms of King David, we came across this, this same Hebrew word, chesed, kindness, goodness, love, or as most scholars agree, best translated, loving kindness, a word that encompasses our concepts of sacrificial love and faithfulness and kindness and goodness and justice. Loving kindness, chesed, stands at the very center of all of the action of this story. Here in chapter 1, we have already seen it. Naomi blesses her daughter-in-law's daughters-in-law, and wishes them well that the chesed of God may be with them, even as she says again and again that she believes that God has somehow abandoned her and turned her out of his chesed. When Naomi makes the decision to leave Moab and return to Bethlehem, she says this to her daughters-in-law in verses 8 and 9. She says, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly, chesed, with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Hesed emerges as the central theme that will play out over the course of this story. And in particular, the hesed, the loving kindness of God, is under the microscope. Again, appreciate the artistry of our storyteller, Because despite Naomi's understandable questioning of God's goodness, we're already introduced to the idea that his loving kindness is real and tangible and very much present, even in her life. Already in the story, we see that while they suffered great tragedy, Naomi's family also experienced God's provision. There was food for them in Moab. They lived there for 10 years, and there's no record of them being harmed or harassed for being refugees among one of Israel's greatest enemies. Likewise, at the end of their sojourn there, Naomi is able to return to her homeland because God has provided food there. In fact, the author makes the brief editorial comment in verse 6 that the Lord had visited his people and provided food. A clear statement about the gracious provision of God. Also, don't overlook the fact that the Lord did provide wives to Elimelech's sons. And one of these, the heroine Ruth, became a constant companion. And as the story unfolds, a provider for Naomi. Surely the author's intent is for us to hear the challenge of Naomi and already respond saying, but don't you see? God has dealt kindly with you. Of course, we don't want to write off Naomi's pain. Her suffering is real. Her complaint is legitimate. Her questioning is understandable. Nowhere here or in the three chapters that follow is Naomi ever rebuked for questioning God's goodness and loving kindness to her. Rather, already here in chapter 1 and in the story that will unfold after, the question is answered with objective evidence that God does deal graciously with his people, that his purposes are accomplished in history even when circumstances seem to dictate otherwise. 
And so the question that we're left pondering, that we're invited even to ask, is when have we been tempted to doubt the goodness and the kindness of God? I know what some of you have walked through in this life. I know what some of you are walking through. And while I am no prophet, I will go out on a limb and say at some point in all of our lives, all of us will walk through something. Even if we haven't already, something that may challenge us to question the goodness of God. What we learn from this story of Naomi this morning is that even in the midst of those times, the grace and the graciousness of God is still there. I won't kid you, it might be well hidden. You might be hard-pressed to see it, harder-pressed to believe it. But I'm here to testify this morning the witness of God's people throughout the ages, all the way back to our sister Naomi, is that even when circumstances are darkest, God's light is shining in there somewhere. Even when we feel like God could not possibly be kind, good, generous, loving, He is not left without a witness. His grace, His kindness is there. Take comfort, people of God. Remember our history. Ask for the eyes to see, the ears to hear. God is there. God is with you, even at the bottom, especially at the bottom. That's the witness of Naomi's story. One final place we see the goodness of God, the loving kindness of God, is in a theme that will follow us throughout the story. It is in the act of inclusion. The welcoming in and blessing of an outsider becoming an insider. Like I said, this is a theme that we'll track over the next four chapters as we hear the story of the unheard of. A Moabite woman. Remember everything that I've said about the relationship between Jews and Moabites. A Moabite woman being welcomed into Jewish society, being welcomed into a Jewish family, and ultimately, spoiler alert, being welcomed into the genealogy of one of God's greatest kings. I don't want to give too much away. I want to keep some of the tension here because we don't get that all resolved right here in chapter 1, but already we do hear the first act of this step of inclusion. We hear Ruth make her brave and frankly, amazingly loyal declaration in verse 16. She says, do not urge me, she's saying this to Naomi, of course, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you will go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more if anything but death parts me from you. And what I want us to understand is that here already in chapter 1 of this story, as far as God is concerned, this is all that is needed for Ruth's acceptance. 
As St. James proclaims it, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God is delighted to draw Ruth in, to enfold her in his loving kindness, to enfold her and make her a pivotal part of his plan for his creation. What's about to unfold over the rest of the story is God's full acceptance and kind embrace of this adopted daughter because of her declaration of embracing him as her God. It will take time for society to accept her, as it often does. It will take time for the process to be complete. But as the story unfolds, just as God silently demonstrates the answer To Naomi's challenge, here too, he will silently demonstrate his acceptance of Ruth. This too is a powerful picture to all of us, adopted sons and daughters of God. When we draw near to him in faith through baptism and the fellowship of his body, the church, God is only too glad to embrace and enfold us in his loving kindness. But it does take this step. Not to cause too many you know, neck or eye twitches, but in the old school of talking about things, we would say this is a conversion experience. This is Ruth's conversion. She was raised as a Moabite, worshiping Moabite gods, following Moabite ways of thinking and worshiping and living. But now she has declared, I want to follow the one true God. Similarly, in the baptismal liturgy of Mother Church, each candidate is asked if they will turn away from their previous ways of thinking and acting and living and believing and turn toward the living God as he has revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ. God is only too glad to bring us in and include us and adopt us and love and show kindness and acceptance. But eventually, to fully experience that, Grace requires us to fully embrace, well, grace, God himself. So what is this book of Ruth about? So far, it's about hesed, the loving kindness of God. Even in the midst of our darkest circumstances, his grace and his love is there. And it's about his kindness in including even outsiders and loving them in. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the gift of this story of faith. This record of your hand moving even when everything around your people seeks to eclipse you from view. Thank you for this encouragement, this reminder that you are good and you bring forth good. Lord, this morning I pray that you would restore hope, restore faith in your chesed, to those who have lost it. It's in your name, Lord Christ, that we pray with the Father 
and the Holy Spirit is ever glorified, one God. Amen.